Amen. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Luke. And thank you, uh, congregation, for that warm welcome and praise of the Lord and the palms. And uh, that scene has been reenacted many, many times. And actually, that's what we're going to talk about this morning is Palm Sunday. But as you know, we are in a holy week. We're in the holy week. This is a very, very important week of worship for the Christian church. And really, the, the last several weeks and culminating in this week is, is a central focus whereby we prepare our hearts and our minds for just this one week of the redemptive time of history. So we have we prepare for this week, many of us, by practicing Lent, where we, we make sure we're in a, a penitent state, and we might give something up or lay something to the side that we're used to, just to put ourselves in a better mindset to worship the Lord. And then it begins with Palm Sunday, which signifies the triumphal entry of Christ. And then we move to uh, Maundy Thursday, where... The mandate to love one another was given in the upper room. And then we move to Good Friday, where, uh, of course, Christ died on the cross. And then culminate with Sunday, Easter Sunday, where Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we as a church, just probably more for convenience sake than anything else, because people come from a far distance, we combine our Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday service uh, we call it a Monday Thursday service, and we celebrate it on a Thursday night. But really, uh, we include a Good Friday aspect to it as well. So we consider the mandate to love one another that was given in the upper room, but we also we, we, um, enter into a very contemplative and reflective time about the cross. I hope you can join us for a Monday Thursday service this week. But there's just a lot of effort, there's a lot of focus and a lot of energy in the Christian church and the way we conduct our lives around one week. And that's for good reason, because we learn this in the Gospels. If you look at the Gospels, there's more ink, revelatory ink, spent on Jesus' final week of life than any other event. So, for instance... Now, there are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and John starts talking about the final week of Christ just in chapter 12. So almost half of his Gospel is concentrated on the final week of Christ. In Mark, it's chapter 11 that begins of 16. Chapter 11 of 16 that begins talking about the final week. The thing that Jesus did is found in all four Gospels. But this event is found in all four Gospels. But I want to focus this morning on Matthew's account. And that's found in Matthew chapter 21. So I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now most of the crowd, this is a prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Well, I've been a pastor for 20 years now, and so I've preached on the triumphal entry many times. It's kind of hard to, to say something new or different. When you're talking about the, when you're talking about the same event, oh, just went out again. So we'll just use this. When, we, when you're talking about the same um, event. And I'm actually glad that there are things that happen in Jesus' life that we are familiar with, and I think it is God's intent that we... As, as you read the Old Testament, he gives us law and revelation and we are to pass it down and we are to do things repetitively so that we remember it, so that we get it down into our hearts. And so I, I hope that we all understand well and remember and perhaps can recite even the Easter story or the Holy Week. It's a good thing to know this. So I, some of this will be redundant and I'm okay with that. But I do want to take a little bit of... Um, of a different angle on the triumphal entry for this particular message. And what I want to or hope to show this morning is that the triumphal entry was in one sense spontaneous and I often read it and I picture it especially as we kind of reenact it here in our sanctuary. And I I, I picture it as the... uh, Followers of Jesus, the disciples and others that had any kind of interest in him or excited about him. They just kind of uh, worked up a, a good worship and a good excitement. Jesus is there, so that's good reason to be excited. He's near um, Jerusalem. They're, it's the, it's, they're preparing for the Passover, so there are a lot of Jews there. And they welcome him, and they get more and more excited, and they start shouting and praising. And, and, um, and then they... they uh, they, ce- they celebrate with the palms and the branches, and he's, he has a donkey, so this is an even bigger deal. And it's kind of like they get so excited to see him in worship that they, like a football team, might put their hero on the shoulder and carry him around for a little while. And I often look at it as if it's just a very kind of a, a, a thing that happened. You know, if, if Jesus were to walk in here this morning, we'd probably get pretty excited and, and something would happen. And yet, there's another aspect of this that that I think reveals it was anything but spontaneous. It was only as spontaneous as it was divinely orchestrated. As a matter of fact, when, when I go back and look at this passage and consider all the, the Gospels and what they have to say about it, I think we can follow Jesus, and I've entitled it Every Royal Step. I think we can follow and conclude that actually this was orchestrated. This was divinely ordained and orchestrated to happen exactly as it happened. And that was orchestrated by Christ himself. He arranges it. 
He ordains it. Uh, he, he, he puts it all into motion. It's not as spontaneous. As, so there's, there's different things happening here. We have the spontaneousness of the human element, but we also have the orchestrated divine element as well. I want to start with the royal, what I'll call the royal buildup first. Now, of course, the big message of the triumphal entry is that Jesus is king. The people recognize that. And as you will see, Jesus is recognizing that as well. He is the king. That's the main message. But it's interesting because Jesus, all up until this point, has been keeping his identity, and particularly his kingly identity, secret. And so when he would perform a miracle or do something miraculous, um, he would often tell the people, don't tell anybody. He healed some blind people. He gave them sight. Don't tell anybody. He healed the lepers. And he would say, present yourselves to the priests, but don't share this. So all along, Jesus is calculating the timing of his ministry. And he doesn't want to get too popular too fast. See, popularity can help the kingdom of God, but it can also hinder the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is balancing because he's on a mission. He knows what he is there to accomplish. He's balancing his ministry and his actions, trying not to let the cart get ahead of the horse, so to speak, because his popularity is not just a great thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. He knows what it means for certain people to understand his proper identity and it's not a good ending for him. So he's, he's playing this uh, divine balancing act, if you will, and he's trying to keep people quiet, as quiet as possible, so that his mission would not make certain people angry, which, of course, will result in his death because the very nature of what he's claiming in his identity uh, forces people's hand. And how, and how they're going to deal with him and receive him or not. So he's carrying out everything with the big picture of the cross and the resurrection and his mission in mind. So the royal buildup happens just right before the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, I mean in Matthew 20, 29 through 34. Let me just read uh, that for you. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, this is Jesus. This is the first time that Jesus is allowing himself to be identified in this way. He's allowing them. He didn't, he didn't squelch it. He didn't calm it. In the loud voice, and, and the more they tried to silence these Men, the louder they got, and they do not just call him Lord, Kurios, but they give him the title Son of David. Now, everybody in that culture would understand what that meant. Because 
It's based on an, a centuries-old promise given to the covenant people about the king that will come from the line of David. And it's going to be a particular king, a certain king, a great king that will rule forever. He will, he will conquer all your enemies. He will put you back into a period of prosperity. And he will set everything right and he will rule and reign forever. That's how that title is understood. So they're saying, you're the king. You're the promised king. God has sent you as the promised king, and you're going to conquer our enemies and set everything back right. And this was a very important title. It wasn't a title that was just given flippantly. It was given very purposefully, very uh, specifically. You didn't just throw that kind of title around. And it's because it's a wonderful title. It's a hopeful title. It's an exciting title. But in this day and age that Jesus came, it was also a very dangerous title to bear because there were other powers in place that would not appreciate that kind of competition. And so in one sense, it was beautiful and filled with hope for some, and yet it was incredibly, incredibly dangerous in the eyes of others, and especially for Jesus to accept it. That's what he did here. He accepted that title. He allowed it. And so he allowed himself to be identified and in, in, in essence saying, yes, I am he. And so that was an even more uh, brave, dangerous thing to do. Now I can imagine when this happened that the apostles were scratching their heads because the whole time they're kind of like pushing Jesus to be a, a greater public figure. They're trying to push him to do more miracles and let's just get the ball rolling here. Don't, don't be secret. If I see who you are and let's just, let's just bring in God's economy. Show the world what you can do. They were so caught up with the excitement of this. And so for... Um, you know, Jesus to be like, nope, it's my time. The hour's not come. It's not time. It's not. But now, it's time. So now they're like, wow, okay. I guess this is time for Jesus to, to become a more public figure. Now, they would probably know that this could mean his death. But when you're the son of God, when you're the son of David, what does that matter? Right? If you're a disciple, you're thinking, well, he can't be stopped. He can't be defeated. It doesn't really matter who finds out at this point. That's kind of the whole point of him being a king and coming to redeem and deliver his people. Jesus is the son of David. And so now the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. And the thing about it is once he accepts that public identity... As a king, there's no turning back. I mean, it's out. The damage is done. Because only two things can happen, really. Either he's going to win or he's going to lose, so to speak. Either people are going to embrace him for who he is, or they're going to crush him for who they don't want him to be. So, in a very real sense, this little uh, build-up, to his steps of royalty was a do or die situation. 
Second, we see the royal crowd. How spontaneous was that? Where did they come from? How did they know to be so excited? How did they know to wave their palms? Well, Palm Sunday happened literally on the day of the week, wait for it, Sunday. It was literally Sunday that this entrance, the triumphal entry happened. And it's during the they're preparing for the Passover, so a lot of people are in Jerusalem. They're, they're busy for this. It's a big time of year. Now, Jesus, often, if he wasn't out on a mission ministering somewhere away from the city, they're drawing near the city to celebrate that. But he often hung out, for lack of better words, um, in Bethany, which was just about two miles east, very close to the city. And also Bethphage is there even closer. So you would go to Bethphage to make your way into the city of Jerusalem. But this was a place that he frequented often. It was a place that he was safe. It was one of the few places that he actually was appreciated. And of course, this is where uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. This is where Jesus performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. He has a big fan base there, or it's probably actually a fan base isn't a good way to put it. There were disciples there. There were true believers there. Now, this was a solid, loyal group who got it, and they understood it, and they, they appreciated him, and they gave him lodging. So they knew him well, and these are just little towns. And when things happen in towns, you find out about it. You know, news travels fast. It's very personable and close. And so they knew him well. And he knew them well. And he would often go there, spend time, share meals, teachings, and so forth. So this is important because this, these towns are so close to Jerusalem. So now, if he's going to fulfill prophecy and have a triumphal entry that's described with the palms, and he doesn't... There are a lot of people who do not appreciate him. Where is he going to get this crowd of loud worshipers? So it's by no mistake that Bethany and Bethage are there and that they're excited to see Jesus there and that they are in tune with what Jesus is doing because they believe in him and they're following his acts here. And so when he asks for the donkey to go get a donkey, you know, Again, this is not a personal, private thing. This is becoming a public thing. Everybody's seeing what he's doing, excited. They understand what that means. They understand him receiving that title. And so now what happens is these two towns, they're the ones that are the worshipers. They give him the triumphal entry. The text says that the city was stirred, but the people, they're in the city. They're in Jerusalem. They're behind the walls, and they're just like hearing what's going on out there, and they're wondering, what's the big ruckus? What's the big ordeal? But it's Jesus' people from these towns that play that part of being the happy worshipers, so, so loyal and trusting to him, and understanding how to react with their cloaks and their palms to welcome him as the true king of Israel. See, this had to take place. It needed to be loud. It needed to be public in order to fulfill the prophecy here. So the more I look at the details, of it, it's not as spontaneous as I have originally 
thought. And then third, you even have the royal donkey, if there is such a thing. The royal donkey. And there's always this mystery about this passage because he tells two um, unnamed disciples. We don't know. None of the Gospels reveal who they are. And he tells these guys specifically what to do, where to go, go into Bethphage, and you'll, he tells them exactly what they're going to see, where to get it, uh, what to ask for, and how to respond, knowing that when you, you just don't go and take somebody's livestock without being questioned, and he tells them the exact answer that will get the exact response that is needed, permission to use these. You know, so, so how did all this take place? Did they just go in there and steal it? Did they, you know, for, for kingdom purposes? Or did Jesus prearrange all of this? Did he go in advance to somebody in that town and say, by the way, I'm going to send two guys on this day and they're going to they're ask for this? Well, the answer to that is no. First of all, no, they didn't just steal it. They didn't just take it um, for no reason. And no, Jesus did not prearrange this. And we know that from another gospel account, not this one, but the other gospel account, when they go to get the colt, the guy's like, oh, where are you going with my colt? The Lord has need, was the answer. Oh, that's the case. So this is all orchestrated and ordained by Jesus. You know, they were the, the people that noticed the disciples coming and grabbing the colt. They were just as surprised as everybody else that all of this was happening. So it was ordained by Jesus, not prearranged. Tell them the Lord has need. He knew that he would get the right response with that. So why did that response elicit permission to use the donkey and the colt? Well, there's... Just like we have today and that day, again, we're talking about Jesus has now just been announced as son of David, the king of Israel. And in that day, they had eminent domain as well. And it was understood that kings of kingdoms had certain privileges that they could, they could exercise. If they needed things to defend their kingdom or to help the public out, they could just they could take them and use them. And so kings would do that sometime according. Of course, uh, in, the Roman emperor had absolute sovereign power, so could take anything at any time, and they often abused that power. But this is a case of eminent domain where Jesus, as the king, is asking to, for, to, for the use of this for his kingdom purpose. And so it's understood, well, of course he can use it. Of course, Jesus just borrows it and brings it back for his use. So technically speaking, Jesus has more eminent domain than just asking to borrow a donkey for a triumphal entry. Now we know him on this side of the cross as the Lord of Lords and Kings of, King of Kings who has reign and rule over every aspect of the universe. It's all his. He can do whatever he wants with it at any time. So this is just a very small exercise of his dominion now as the King of Israel. Uh, why an unbroken cult? Well, my understanding or scholars say that this whole idea of eminent domain, a lot of times the kings would claim things 
and they were, they were theirs, they kind of had their mark, and they would break them. They, they needed to be the first ones to ride them to kind of show their ownership. Um, and so the, the idea I am assuming behind that is it's Jesus just showing his kingship over this. He's the first one to ride this colt. And, of course, the mother's with it as well. I'm assuming to keep the unridden colt calm. Uh, mothers have that effect. That's why you have mothers in the back there. They're keeping their kids calm so that we can have our service up here. Mothers can do that, and that happens in the animal kingdom as well. It's interesting to note that the last time that the city, at least in Matthew's gospel, the last time the city was so stirred up like this was when Jesus was born. And when the wise men came, or, well, after Jesus' birth, but when the wise men came and said, we're seeking a king to worship, a king has been born, we want to worship him. The city was stirred. Of course, Herod was really stirred. But then it says, and the city around him as well was stirred. And then, just gee whiz, I think it's interesting that Mary rode into Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus on a donkey because she was ready. He was ready, and she couldn't make that journey on foot, so she was on a donkey. The Lord had need for that donkey as well. So the city was stirred at his royal birth, and now once again the city is stirred at his royal coronation. Jesus is in charge. On Monday Thursday service we will hear how Jesus' life, it wasn't taken from him. It wasn't as spontaneous as we often think it is. The fulfillment of people's rage and anger. He said, no, I gave it. Jesus is in charge of all of these things all the time. It was a divine substitution. There was no accident. It wasn't a thwarting of any kind of plan where man got in the way of God's plan. And the same pattern is here. He is orchestrating his own coronation. So why do, we point, why do I point this out? Jesus' life is a, uh, a fulfillment of centuries of promise after promise after promise of God. And so we, as we celebrate the triumphal entry, we are just substantiating the, the truthfulness and the sovereignty of God to fulfill his plan, which increases our faith Because there are promises that we have that are yet to be fulfilled, but we can be assured that they will be fulfilled. God is steering the ship. It's an evidence of the sovereignty of God. So let me uh, make a little bit of application as we wind down here. Think about the prophecy that was fulfilled Matthew quotes it, and he's quoting Zechariah 9.9. Let me read um, Zechariah's actual account of it. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I, I like how revealing that is because even that prophecy says shout. So it's like even down to the noise level, 
of the coronation, the, the royal steps of Christ, the crowds and the noise. He couldn't just go in quietly. There needed to be a, 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 a songs and singing and shouting and praise. The whole kit there, down to the noise level, was orchestrated in fulfillment of prophecy. So every royal step, I see, was ordained. And he comes on a, mount, on a donkey. And he's a king. And this is his coronation. And, you know, in that culture, when you were a king and you were going to do something mighty, you wanted to, to exhibit your kingship, you didn't ride a donkey. Especially if you were going to war. If you were declaring, I'm a king now, and, I'm, and I am the head of this kingdom, and I'm going to battle, you rode a mighty steed. And it symbolized your power and your might. The last thing you wanted to do was ride a donkey or a mule. It had a different symbolic reference. So, you know, if Jesus is the conquering king, what's with the donkey? Well, the donkey is more a symbol of peace and servitude. As Solomon, we've been talking about Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature, he, when he was coronated king, he rode David's, his father's mule in his coronation. It was a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity. Jesus rides this because he's the humble king. And he has no intention of rising up with military arms to conquer his kingdom and to bring the nations under his submission. He is going to conquer in a different way. Actually, a better way. Genesis 49 reiterates the promise of this king. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. All the way back in the first book of the Bible, you see this on God's mind, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I'm going to send my king. And he's going to be so great that he will rule over all nations. And he will live forever. Now that's a great thing because once you get the, uh, the greatest person in office, you don't want him to die or to leave. You want him to just stay there and continue. We want to stay under your rule forever and ever. And that's the promise that this great king will rule forever and ever. Now in their day, you know that they believe that the king would He's here, so obviously he's going to conquer the Romans, finally. He's going to conquer the Romans. He's going to sit on the throne, vanquish our enemies, and, and launch us into another age of peace and prosperity. That's the thinking. That's the anticipation when you understand these verses. And here he comes on an itty-bitty cult. That should be something of note right there. He comes humbly. So what does the royal donkey mean? How do we apply this? Well, he comes as a king, but he comes as a servant king. And he's not going to conquer the Romans like they might hope that he conquers the Romans. Because he is such a magnificent, wise, powerful king. He's going to take care of the big problem. 
And the biggest problem in the world, and even for his own people, are not being under subjection to the Romans. The biggest problem is that all mankind, including his people, are in subjection and bondage to sin. If he drives the Romans out of Jerusalem and frees his people, then what has he done? We still have greed. We still have malice. There will still be war after war after war vying for power because sin had not been conquered. So this king is so great, he takes it down to the root level, the base level. And what he's going to conquer is he's going to conquer sin and death. He's going to put that in subjection. He's going to set people free from that curse. Now that enables him to set up a world of true peace, a world of true prosperity. It just hasn't had happened yet, but it's in progress. A challenge here, when I like when Matthew describes it as your king is coming to you. So they were faced with an issue now. When Jesus comes into the world publicly and he announces who he is and what his mission is, who God is and who we are, then people that hear that and are privy to it are forced. He forces the issue, now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with me? So in the Roman times when he lived, what are you going to do with this knowledge now, the truth? Well, some honor it, others kill it. People put Jesus to death. But we're forced with the same issue, right? When we understand and we hear about Jesus, he, he finds his way into our lives. He comes to us, whether it's through a message or through a song or through the beauty of creation or an event in our lives. He tugs at our heart and he comes to us. And he makes himself known and in a sense forces the issue. Now, what are you going to do with the truth? What are you going to do with me? Are you going to crown me or are you going to kill me? Are you going to get rid of me? One of the ways that Jesus exercised his sovereignty in this passage is that he went into his father's, into the temple. That actually happened on a Monday. We learned that from Mark's account. He goes in and he gets upset because there's crooks, there's thieves, there are money changers, and they're skimming off the top. There's nothing pure about this. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And what he does, he throws it, the, the, he upends the tables. He rearranges furniture, so to speak. Because this is my father's house. Well, Jesus is God. This is his house. He has the authority, the sovereignty to let people in or kick people out because it's his house. See, he's the king. He's God. So we are forced with the same idea. What are we going to do with Jesus? He's coming. He's the king. Nothing has changed. He continues to come. And he continues to make himself known. And when we embrace him, that gentle, lowly spirit is recreated in us. And that's what he does through the power of his Holy Spirit. And then we become like him and then we're gentle and we're lowly. And we, in our little way, we get to participate in the kingdom coming. We pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we get to participate in that every day by being more and more like Jesus. Changing the world. I like what um, Timothy Keller says. He says, sin is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. 
Therefore, salvation was the king putting himself in the place of the servant. And that's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. We are the undeserving sinners. How are we going to get out from under the bondage of our own sin? Our nature. By nature, we desire it. We are not free. We're free to do whatever we want. And what do we want? Sin. Because of our sin nature. The world was saved through divine humility, not brutal strength. Now, we're in the book of Revelation. And Jesus will come back and he won't be riding a little itty bitty donkey or a foal. It'll be different terms. And what's described in Revelation is just as real. And he will come as a conquering king. And everything will be put under his subjection. That's the end of this world as we know it. All things will be consummated in Christ. God has promised us and he's revealing this to us so we will understand and be prepared and know how to conduct ourselves and worship him. So these palm branches, they symbolize victory. Jesus is the king. And they put him before him. It's kind of like what we would do, uh, the royal carpet or the red carpet, so royalty could walk down. They recognized him in that way. And because he does reign the world, and he is king, the world will change. God the king will get his way. His will will come to pass. And so things will continue to go on and go on and go on until the king of kings and the lord of lords returns. And when he returns, things will get loud, prophetically get loud again as his servants bow before him and worship him forever and ever and sing holy praises to a holy God. And this will all take place because of Jesus' royal steps. May God bless the preaching of his word. And now we have an opportunity. To-